I don't know that I remember the very first time that I spoke with him, but I, I have a first time in my memory in the hallways where they had these uh, posters of all the previous productions from student theater groups uh, on the walls. So I think we were vaguely aware of each other, but we ran into each other. And I remember, I just remember something like him realizing that I was Turkish, which terrified me because I knew that he was Armenian and I didn't really have any Armenian friends at that point. I think he said something like, oh, Ersin, you're Turkish. I was like, uh, yeah. And then he's like, you know, I'm Armenian, right? And I was like, oh, shit. Where is this going to go? <laughs> and I had been told by more hardline Armenians that Turks are bad, they deny the genocide. When I met Ersin and I, I learned he was Turkish, I felt a level of discomfort, but we hadn't had any sort of concrete discussion about history or anything like that. So eventually, at some point, it, it came up and... You know, we quickly established that at that point, what he said was he did not believe that there was an Armenian genocide. And we kept our distance. Today, we have a story about our beliefs, about the things we're brought up to know to be true about ourselves. Beliefs so strong and powerful that they shape the identity, culture, and attitudes of an entire nation. And it's also about how, not in one particular moment, but in the moments over time, when we begin to question those very stories. That uncomfortable space when we're faced with another truth that contradicts our own, and ultimately the histories we were taught over the course of our entire lives. I'm Razana Zayani. I'm Hiva Fisher. And I'm Jackie Sophia. And I'll be telling you our story today. This is Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. So it all started when I was talking to this guy. My name is Rafi Wartanian. This is Rafi, the Armenian-American that Ersin bumped into earlier. Or an American-Armenian. I don't, I don't care which comes first. Some people care very much. I'm okay with either. But this is Rafi now, over a decade later since that awkward run-in with Ersin, the Turkish-American. We're having an interview in here. Oh my god, I'm sorry. That's okay. I was Can you? Who is this? Sorry, it's a, I'm sorry. It's typical of this house to be interrupted. So, welcome to an Armenian household where there's no privacy at all. <laughs> Your mom is like, what's going on in the closet? very shocked. Oh, and that's Rafi's mom finding us in a sorry, closet. Mess, probably messed recording up this tape. interview. That's okay. Rafi's family, they're exactly how he pictured them. They're warm and inviting. Their home felt just like the homes I'd been ushered into in the Middle East. You know, people you've never met before end up introducing you to their entire family and insist that you stay for coffee. The smell of food, cooking in the kitchen as soon as you walk in. Everybody giving you a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And sure enough, Rafi's mom offers me a fresh-baked roll and coffee. We sit at the kitchen table as she slices vegetables and talks about Beirut, 
where she used to live. My family, my parents are both born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, and their parents came from eastern Anatolia, which is eastern Turkey today. Okay, just to clarify, because you'll hear this name, Anatolia, referred to a few times. So, basically, Anatolia, it's a piece of the larger Ottoman Empire that kind of juts out from the western side of modern-day Turkey. Okay, back to Rafi. So, on my mom's side, my great-grandparents are from a village called Zara, not the clothing company, actual town, in north-central Anatolia. So my great-grandfather, he sort of left behind the largest source of information that we have about, you know, our families. Rafi's great-grandfather, he didn't just leave behind information about his family. He left behind pieces to a much larger story that's actually come to be one of the most politically contested disappearances of human life in the 20th century. Over the course of history in the Ottoman Empire, Armenians had actually been targeted for quite some time. Beginning on the eve of World War I, the Armenian population of the Ottoman Empire plummeted from 2 million to less than 400,000. A lot happened between this period of time that we'll talk more about later, but for now, here's some of what Rafi learned growing up. Armenian men in the Ottoman Empire were being targeted village by village. They were either enslaved, killed, or were worked to death. Women and children and the elderly were being led as caravans into the Syrian desert. And all of this was under the direction of the Ottoman Empire. Mardiros Bulumian, Rafi's great-grandfather, he was a teenager at the time, and he managed to escape one of these caravans. But even though he escaped, he gets caught again, and then enslaved. And he's forced to transport grain and supplies to neighboring farms, but he's also forced to bury the bodies of his fellow Armenians, mostly women, young girls, and children. And after four years, Mardiros manages to escape again. After he returns to his family's home in Zara and finds out that nothing's left, he eventually makes it to Latakia, Syria, to a refugee camp there. And he starts a family while living in the camp. And he'll be in that camp for 10 years before he finally gets a job in Beirut, Lebanon, working as a road contractor paving roads. Rafi's parents, they both grew up and met each other in Beirut. They got married, and around the time of the Civil War in Lebanon, they ended up moving to the U.S., to Baltimore, Maryland. I wanted to talk to Rafi's parents. I wanted to ask them about what it was like to be the children and grandchildren of Armenian refugees. And I wanted to know how they feel about Turks today, but they didn't want to go on tape. And it's understandable. Now, there's another side to this whole story that we haven't heard yet. So we're going to start it here with Ersin. So Ersin is the same guy we heard earlier in the beginning of this episode. Oh, Ersin, you're Turkish. I was like, uh, yeah. And then he's like, you know I'm Armenian, right? And I was like, oh, sh**, where is this going to go? <laughs> he's Turkish-American. His parents, both from Turkey, came over to the U.S. in the 70s when really violent protests and communist versus fascist strikes 
were essentially shutting down university campuses in the country. And in order to finish school, his parents, they immigrated to the United States. I got to talk to Erson over the phone a few times, and our conversations were pretty long, more than an hour each. And he told me he never really had the chance to tell his story, that he was nervous, but also that he wanted to talk about it and for people to hear it. There were a lot of discussions about politics and about history, of course, at, at my house, um, both within my family and among our family, Turkish family friends living here. Like, oh yeah, well, you know, Armenians were the favored people. And they had a lot of contact with the West, a lot of education, a lot of money, etc., that the poor Turks didn't have. For example, people will say things like, how can how could Armenians possibly be have been dis, that discriminated against when Mimar Sinan, architect Sinan, was the greatest architect of the entire Ottoman Empire's history? Explain that to me. Mimar Sinan, he was a very famous architect in the Ottoman Empire, and he was known to have an Armenian background. The relationship that the Armenians had with other Western nations, it gets kind of complicated here. But what it boils down to is that, according to what Erson learned, for decades, Armenians were a privileged minority in the Ottoman Empire. And they had certain alliances with Western countries and the Russians that didn't include the Ottoman Turks. And so what I learned growing up, you know, there was this legitimate military measure taken to deport Armenians uh, on en masse from eastern Anatolia because they were all collaborating with Russian forces, uh, and to move them into Syria. And so what Ersin learned from a Turkish perspective was that in the process of this whole deportation, right, a variety of unexpected events happened that just killed hundreds of thousands of Armenians while they were trekking to Syria on their way out of Anatolia. You know, raids by Circassian and Kurdish uh, irregular forces and uh, highwaymen, and also the outbreak of influenza and, uh, you know, just very poor uh, logistical planning. But wherever there was a strong Ottoman presence, that's where Armenians were best taken care of and they fared the best. So imagine being a little kid. And when you're little, most of what you know, it's pretty limited to whatever your parents tell you, right? And your parents have told you this one story your entire life you know, your entire childhood. The story about your ancestral home, about where they come from. But it's not the same story that everybody around you has been told. And guess what? Some of the kids at school, they're growing up with this other story. And in that story, they see you as someone entirely different. There would be, for example, somebody in my school was Armenian or somebody was, say, Kurdish or something like that. And, um, you know, they would learn that I'm Turkish and then they would, you know, call me like a rapist or call me a, a maniac or a, a murderer or something like that. The genocide myth, as it was put to me, uh, is like this glue, this binding force, and it causes a huge amount of resentment and hatred uh, among Armenians of Turks, and so I, I better watch out, and I shouldn't, I should steer totally clear from that, uh, or else I might be the target of that hatred. Combined with kind of what my parents taught me about 
being Turkish in America, that we are a kind of weird minority in that there's very little visibility. Um, we are very passable as white. And so nobody thinks, oh, this is a minority that has minority-like issues. I was kind of raised with a, with a sort of a sense of paranoia that I should be careful uh, about who I reveal my identity to because you never know. There might be somebody from uh, a neighboring country in the, from the old, old lands, right, the old world, who might, uh, uh, might cause some trouble for me. So Erson, he gets older, and eventually he goes off to college in Baltimore. He becomes a humanities major, which brings us back to this moment, to the dimly lit hallways behind this theater on campus, where Erson sees this guy walking towards him. Yeah, I think I think it was sometime pretty pretty early. I would guess probably fall uh, fall of two thousand and five. Uh, on campus, and there are these these just like kind of hallways crisscrossing the the bottom of the theater. And I remember that I was walking somewhere like for a show that I was in, and then this guy just like sees me, and it's Rafi, but I didn't really know him at that point. And he's like, "Hey, I heard that you're going to be on the 4K with me, and you're Turkish, <laughs> something like that." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, what's going on?" <laughs> And I had been told by more hardline Armenians that Turks are bad, they deny the genocide. And like, I, I didn't quite understand. I didn't have a ton of experience and knowledge. So when I met Ersin and I, I learned he was Turkish, I felt a level of discomfort. Eventually, at some point, it, it came up and... You know, we quickly established that at that point, what he said was he did not believe that there was an Armenian genocide, but that lots of Armenians had been needlessly killed and it was terrible what happened. But the word genocide is very debatable. So that made me very uncomfortable. And I told him that and we kept our distance. But then the 4K happened. It's a cycling team that bikes 4,000 miles across the United States, from Baltimore to San Francisco, every year. The 4K for Cancer, it's a nonprofit that raises awareness and funds for cancer research and treatment. And over the few years since it started, it's become a pretty well-known thing around campus. People who sign up for it fill out this long application saying why they want to do it and prove that they'd be able to put up with a grueling schedule which isn't just physically exhausting, but it's also really emotionally and mentally exhausting as well. Riding every day for two months with not much else to keep you occupied except your bike and the people you're riding with. I saw a poster, a flyer, and uh, I just remember that it was saying like, want to ride across the country and all this stuff. And I, my initial reaction was that that is just, that is just crazy. Like that's bad crazy. Who the hell would do that? And then I thought, oh, I would do that, actually. So <laughs> as I dug into it, you know, the obviously the cause was an important one. And in my application, I wrote about my grandmother having cancer. But I think if I'm being 
really 100% honest, the biggest motivator for me was just to go on, on a big adventure. So Rafi and Erson both apply to be part of the team. And as luck would have it, they're both accepted. So people accepted onto the team, they're expected to do community service in the months leading up to the ride. With 25 other teammates, these two guys were doing things like making dinners at a local care residence for cancer patients who were being treated at the nearby hospitals in the city. Yeah, I mean, we, we would interact at Hope Lodge. Um, I think we were in the same circles in general in terms of drama um, and theater. But knowing me around that time, I probably felt pretty intimidated and worried that, like, because of my background, that Rafi hated me or something like that. In the early morning hours of a late spring day in 2006, only days after the end of the school year, Rafi and Erson, they join the rest of their 25-person team on campus. Duffel bags are crammed into the back of team vans, bikes are tuned, and they ride down as a unit to the inner harbor, two by two. There's a small, almost obscure ceremony, and the riders dip their tires into the water of the harbor, and then they head west. Like in the morning, you get up and you're like, wow, what the f*** am I doing? Where am I? And <laughs> who are these people? I felt in general very nervous about riding with people, just like the physical proximity of my wheels to their wheels. And the, I mean, there were so many near-death moments where I was always like, I don't know, there was always this sort of tension for me of it, it was an environment that was where emotional closeness and intimacy was fostered through a certain kind of physical intimacy, the physical intimacy of sport. So we get up in Nevada at like three in the morning to beat the heat or whatever. And, you know, people would sort of straggle up and there would be some kind of breakfast somewhere. People would be sitting together eating breakfast. There's a lot of socializing going on at that point that I often didn't take part in. I always remember these circles. As we're getting ready to actually hit the road, we'd have these circles where everybody would gather in a circle and talk about who they were dedicating their ride to that morning. People would feel free to talk about something that was important to them that they had on their minds about that day and who they were dedicating the trip to. And then people would break out into, into groups and it definitely felt like, you know, there were some groupings and like kind of cliques and whatever of people who tended to stick together. And then I would always feel nervous to be like, oh, I don't know who to ride with. I felt like everybody was in on a joke that I, I wasn't in on. It felt a little exclusive. I just always remember feeling like, you know, I, I was one of, I think, three freshmen uh, on that trip. And everybody else was uh, either a sophomore or an upperclassman. And so I felt very isolated, which is not their fault, actually. I was a very different person at that point in time. And I think I had a lot of anxieties and phobias and, and stuff like that that I don't really have anymore. So I wasn't really able to socialize the way that I, I wish I could have. So about two weeks into the ride, the team is at a water stop. And Erson, he's on the phone with his family, probably his okay, mom or his dad. Okay, I love you. Bye-bye. And something happens. I overheard his conversation with his parents on the phone. Here's Rafi again. 
And I would hear him say things that sounded familiar. I hadn't quite figured out yet how it all worked, but our dialect of Armenian has a lot of Turkish, Arabic, and French in it because these are like the colonial powers that Armenians pass through their borrowed words as part of the dialect. So he, he would hear me say things that were Turkish, you know, words that were Turkish. Uh, you know, if I was talking to my mom, I'd say, Anne Nasılsın? Uh, which means, Mom, how are you? And to my dad, I'd say, Baba Nasılsın? Uh, dad, how are you? Um, or, you know, Ben I'm good. We started talking about how our parents were had very similar personalities and how the cultures, you know, the Turkish culture he came from, because his parents were from Turkey, and the culture, my family's culture, had all of these very quirky qualities that were pretty funny to think about, you know, as we're biking along, you know, talking about you have to marry a Turkish girl or an Armenian girl and you have to, you know, just all the the social norms that we sort of disagreed with or questioned, we found a lot of common ground. Rafi was somebody who didn't just didn't give a f- like he just didn't care about about sort of social pretensions and uh well you have to act this way or that way he was really just very creative and always kind of being silly and artistic a lot of our interactions just would be after we get to the uh wherever we were going and would you know we bonded a lot over like jokes that we would make or sometimes like little pranks we would make these dumb songs about the trip and then play them for everybody and it kind of became it became a well-known duo so i i think that it became pretty evident very quickly as we progressed in the ride in an organic fashion that there was no no need for any kind of tension and so they keep going like this right biking writing songs, biking, composing, biking, mixing, then playing the songs for their audience, which is really just their teammates. Most of the songs are based on inside jokes between the teammates, and honestly, if you listen to them, you don't really get it sometimes, or it might sound a little raunchy. Some of them are pretty raunchy, (laughs) but you can also tell they're all in really good fun. Uh, There was this guy, David Luongo, who was built like a truck, uh, I think he was in Colorado now, and we always kind of looked up to him as like one of the badasses of the of the trip. And then he said, he one time he said, "Bamps in the back," and I was like, "What? What's a what's a bamf?" And he's like, "A badass mother." So then we made a song called "Bamps in the Back." There was a there was a lot of production quality going on, given the fact that we just had his uh, his MacBook with no external mic or anything, and we're in, you know, the middle of nowhere half of the time. I think that what set me at ease is just Rafi. Just this natural sort of bursting forth of energy and, and positivity. And that is something that, you know... It's it's hard not to to engage with that. So those other elements 
I think we're still present. Uh, but overall, that those were not the dominant elements in our relationship. They pass through towns of less than a thousand people. They ride through downpours and up mountains. There are some close calls with trucks. Someone breaks their hand. A couple people end up leaving the ride before it even ends. But eventually, they do end up in San Francisco. They cross the Golden Gate Bridge on the last day, and they dip their tires into the Pacific Ocean. There's hugging, maybe some crying, and then they get onto a plane and go back to Baltimore. But they didn't just go back to their regularly scheduled program. I, so I was a history major, and although my subject had nothing to do with the Middle East or with Turks or Armenians, um, being friends with Rafi made me think, well, I should do some research about this, right? I thought that I would go out and do my own research. Um, and I think I even remember asking Rafi for some help, just like some sources that he recommended, some books that I should read. And I started to read some more from the Armenian perspective. I tried to seek out, like, what is the scholarly Turkish opinion, for example, on the, say, an issue like the Armenian genocide. I realized that actually the amount of scholarship from the Turkish side, like I had expected that, oh, this is, there's a ton of scholarship out there from the Turkish side. It's just not well publicized because everybody is kind of like, it's a taboo. But the truth is that there's really almost nothing. Like there's a few articles from the nineties and the eighties here and there, most often done by amateur historians inside of Turkey. There's so much like loaded with the word genocide. And especially when you consider like sometimes I wonder whether Armenians are aware or the community in general are aware that most Turks fully accept that like hundreds of thousands of Armenians died. And, the, you know, the, the consensus among professional historians about the Armenian genocide is like the consensus among professional scientists about climate warming. I mean, there are some out there who are skeptics, but, I mean, overwhelmingly, right? And this was always sort of dismissed by the Turkish side as just politics, right? So honestly, this kind of confused me. Like, how can someone deny that this happened, but also admit that it did? So on the anniversary of the Armenian genocide this year, which is April 24th, I came across this article in the New York Times And the article was titled, Sherlock Holmes of the Armenian Genocide Uncovers Lost Evidence. The article talks about Dr. Taner Acham, a historian who managed to find what he called, quote, the smoking gun. And it goes on to give this play-by-play, right, of how Dr. Acham and his team, they discover this document. It's a telegram, and it was typed up in a secret code from a high-ranking official in the Ottoman Empire to a colleague of his asking about information on the, quote, killing of Armenians in eastern Anatolia. It's a pretty exciting discovery because most of the documents that the Turkish government supposedly had at the time that were evidence of an organized Armenian genocide, they disappeared after World War I. Supposedly, they were destroyed. But apparently this document was with a bunch of other boxes that the Armenians, who were in Istanbul at the time, shipped to England for safekeeping in 1922, right before the Turkish nationalists 
were about to take over the country. From there, the documents take a route that's straight out of a Dan Brown novel. They were kept by a bishop in the UK, then later went to France, and then Jerusalem, and they stayed in Jerusalem where they were kept in an archive, and they haven't budged since the 1930s. No one seems to know why, but they can't be accessed by scholars. However, Dr. Ocham did find photographic evidence of the document, and he found it in New York, of all places. There was an Armenian monk who was living in New York, and he's since passed away, but he was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And his nephew, he kept the photographs that his uncle took of the documents while he was in Jerusalem. And it sounds like this incredible story, right? This long-lost document gets found in this crazy international chase of sorts. But then the article quotes this other guy, this other historian, an Armenian by the name of Dr. Bedros Dermatosian. And he says, quote, Denialists will remain denialists. He just kind of waves it off like it doesn't matter what they found. Which seems strange, you know? At least it seems strange to me. So I went looking for another source. My name is Umit Kurt. I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm an adjunct professor at Clark University and postdoctoral fellow in Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. In elementary school and middle school and high school, I was indoctrinated, educated and trained like a Turkish, ideal Turkish teenager who firmly believed the you know, supreme identity of being a Turk, this Turkish pride. I never heard the word genocide in my life until the university, my university hood, let's say. So I asked him, what do you think about denialism? People who deny that 1.5 million Armenians who died had nothing to do with an organized genocide. Like, do you think what Mertosian says is true? And so I assume that, okay, he's a historian. He'll think documented evidence. It plays a pretty big role in convincing people of something they refuse to accept is true. Like, if you can somehow get that person into a room and put this evidence in front of them and make them look at it, they'll change their minds. Denialism in Turkey is based on the consent and the support mechanisms of the society, Turkish society, Turkish public, not only state. So, you know, this, of course, denialism is it's like it's a continuous process and it's inherited by one generation to another. So, and it became, it has become a culture. What do you think it takes for, you know, the average Turk to change their perspective? You can make you can make studies, you can develop on you know this subject matter in order to bring more and more proof. But that was that is only beneficial for the researchers, for the scholars, for the public who are interested in the issue. But for denialists, that's futile. That doesn't make any sense. He's gonna or she's gonna deny it anyway. You know, that's why I can't see any point to bring the proof in order to change mon- mentality of the denialists. Someone can do that. But I wouldn't buy that argument, you know? That's my, that's my point of view. The problem of denialists has nothing to do with demonstrating them proof, okay? Since there is a plenty of proof, there's a, there's a, there are numerous proofs out there, they don't have a problem of acknowledging it. That's the issue, you know? But then, what is it? I mean, what is it that's actually going to change someone's mind? 
what changes the way we think and feel about something if it isn't going to be hard fact-based evidence? Documents are means, you know, are tools. We are talking about, first and foremost, a mass violence incident. Armenian genocide was a, is a mass violence incident, such as Rwanda, what happened in Rwanda, what happened in Germany and Eastern Europe during the Holocaust, and so on and so forth. Don't believe the power of the document. Believe in your narrative. You know, so I believe the power of the narrative. So that's why I always go after the narrative itself. So I talked to Rafi and Erson 10 years after they did the 4K, and they're still really good friends. Erson, he's married now. Right after our last conversation, he was headed out on a ritual date night with his wife, which I thought was really adorable. And he's working at a startup company in California, where he feels like he's really found his niche. Rafi, he's in LA, and he just released an album a few years ago. He composes his own music that's kind of a fusion of classical Armenian and American folk. And he's teaching guitar and the oud, and he's also working on a screenplay. And here's Rafi again. Yeah, I saw him uh, I saw him a few months ago. We've kept in touch all these years, and he's actually on a journey of really stripping down the dogma and the ideologies he's been told to believe and carry on, and he's felt very much misled. I don't try to like push, like I don't try to push it on him. It's not my agenda to try to go and convince him of X, Y, or Z, but my interest is, you know, is first and foremost with him as a person. You know, I'm just there to support him on his journey and, you know, likewise. What now is the narrative that you believe in? Now I, I, I do believe that the massacres that occurred were part of an orchestrated uh, program of genocide, which is a pretty, <laughs> I suppose this is going to be broadcast and now uh, people will hear this. And I mean, that's a, that's a dangerous thing for me to say, um, but I, I don't really, I don't care. Well, I do care actually a lot, but I also don't want to hide my beliefs. And I think it's important for people who are in my position to, to speak out. And that's why I say it. Um, that is, a, that's a, that's a risk to, as a Turk, to, to believe that as many people have found out, you know, even with their lives. You know, from the other perspective, from Turkish perspective, there's so much insistence on like, well, we didn't kill you on purpose. And it's like, okay, but you accept that you accept that your actions were played a role or that generally our ancestors were somehow involved in this tragic event, right? Then, I mean, at some point, when do we recognize that an absurd amount of blood has been spilled and that we are all neighbors and we're all you know, part of the same community and that as neighbors, we need to take care of each other. I mean, at some point, when do we just acknowledge the enormous amount of pain in the room? Sometimes I wonder whether it would be possible for me to be close friends with Rafi 
if I never accepted the Armenian genocide? That's always a lingering question for me. <laughs> Sometimes I walk down this the street and, uh, you know, in the neighborhood that I'm next to, there's a big mural and it says, you're entitled to your own truth. And then it says, so long as your truth does not encourage my destruction or the enslavement of my will. And, you know, something when there's a great historical tragedy, a tragic event like this, I wonder, is it really possible to move on without justice and without that wrong being redressed? You know, it's very nice that Rafi and I make silly songs together and that we we can we can do all that. But sometimes I wonder whether that is um, whether any of that would be possible unless he knew that I cared. This Kerning Cultures episode was produced by myself, Jackie Sophia, with editorial support by Rizen Elzayani, Hiba Fisher, Alex Atak, and Persia Verlin. Sound design by Ramzi Bashur, with additional support from Lily Crown. A very special thanks to Ersin and Rafi for opening up their lives to us and sharing their stories. Thank you to Dr. Umit Kurt. A lot of the acoustic melodies that you heard in today's episode were composed and played by Rafi. Yep, that Rafi. You can check out some of his music by going to our website. Just follow the Episodes button at the top right-hand corner to this episode and check it out there. Some of the other songs you heard, they were the actual songs that Erson and Rafi wrote, composed, and mixed during their ride across the U.S. As always, if you liked what you heard here today, Please take a quick second and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. It makes us more popular so more people can find out about us and hear more stories like this one. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Kerning Cultures. Turks always have a way of ending conversations on the phone, I noticed, in a way that feels very like... Like the translation would be like, okay, I'm going to go now. Okay, good, 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 great, great. Okay, okay, I'm going now. Okay, I I kiss you a lot. All right, great. Okay, I love you. Okay, okay, I love you too. Yeah, definitely. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye, bye-bye. I see you. Bye-bye.